what we're talking what we're talking about today is the relationship between cyber threats and the well-being of your teams and of your school communities. Uh, it's interesting that in both of the recent attacks that are ransomware incidents that have occurred, human failing uh, in, was, was actively involved as one of the factors that led to those the success of those ransomware attacks. So this is not something that uh, anybody that's uh, concerned about security can afford to ignore. This is a very important aspect to your overall security picture. Uh, the, when we talk about cybersecurity and the human factor, there's a few uh, things that we need to be aware of. Uh, I recently attended a webinar given by a technical company and uh, one of their uh, points that they made was that one of the most important um, uh, aspects about setting up a cybersecurity strategy was the importance of culture. Uh, so it's all well and good to focus on technology and software solutions, but unless you get the culture right, uh, you're really, you're really uh, setting yourself up for failure. Uh, and included in that, uh, we have to be concerned about the well-being, the, the, the mental health and the, and the physical health of the team that, that's involved. They're going to be subjected to a lot of stress. Uh, and finally, the other thing that we are always concerned about is motivation. People have to want to do security. It has to be part of their day-to-day -day, uh, uh, work ethic. Uh, they need to be motivated to do it. And uh, that's uh, over a long term, that's often a very hard thing to maintain is that motivation. Uh, I guess the thing that's increasing uh, in today's environment is that there's an increased change and there's an increased rate of change. We're also seeing a, a great uh, increase in complexity. We're seeing the introduction of things like multi-factor authentication and then different sorts of multi-factor authentication. They all, all led complexity on top. The other uh, factor that we're seeing is uh, the, the, when a breach occurs, what is capable of being stolen now, what is capable, the damage that can be capable of being subject, a business could be subjected to, the risk level is higher than it was previously. Ransomware especially has the ability to cripple a business, cripple the reputation of an organization that's built up their reputation over many, many years. I'll give you a personal example. I was recently traveling uh, I'd been. Uh, I had to. I checked out the train station that I needed to follow. Needed to uh, catch a train from the following morning. I went to the train station. I, I walked away from the train station with my wife. I'd unfortunately I'd gone to the bathroom while I was there. I walked away from the train station. I looked at my wife as I as I as we walked into the hotel. And I said, "I don't have my mobile phone with me," and I realised I'd left my mobile phone back in the train station in the, in the bathroom, and I and I and the risk associated with just that simple. Simple failing was huge because everything is now on your on your mobile phone. Mm. I rushed back to that train station as quickly as I could, went back into the bathroom, and and miracle of miracles, there was the mobile phone. <laughs> so I was I was very very happy to see that that device. But the point is, the risk associated with uh, uh, failings in the human side is much greater now than it ever has been before. And of course, that's another example of uh, how important human factors. In this case, remembering to take your phone with you. Uh, to, to uh, successful uh, well-being. So um, this is affecting, uh, we're getting various messages from schools. It's affecting the IT staff, so the teams that we're talking to today, but it's also affecting the teaching and admin staff. We're getting reports um, that teachers are reluctant to go to MFA because of uh, a lot of different reasons. They don't want the complexity that it adds to their lives. They don't want to be dependent on devices. They don't want to be they don't want to be 
being tracked by big tech, uh, all of these issues are coming up. So, the, and this is affecting the, the well-being of the teaching staff and their acceptance. In other words, how motivated they are to take on the extra security profiles that they need to. So this is not just something that the IT staff within a school need to be worried about. This is also affecting the uh, students and it's also affecting parents. So the, you need to be thinking about how, how is this new technology affecting each element of my community and how are those communities, uh, how are those elements of my community part of the security profile? Uh, each one of those individuals and schools have hundreds of individuals in their, in their community, thousands by the time you take into account parents. Every one of those identities is, a, is an opportunity for a bad actor to breach the security of the, of the, of the school. So you have, a, 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 you have to be concerned about a lot of, about the, the well-being aspect, not, you have to be looking at it from many different perspectives, not just the perspective of your IT staff. Uh, I just wanted to uh, now introduce uh, Peter. Uh, I've known Peter and worked with Peter for over 20 years. Too long, Peter. Too many, too many years uh, in, many <laughs> different, in many different roles. Uh, Peter was instrumental in setting up the Internet Industry Association, of which uh, we've been a member for many years. And in fact, uh, I, I went on the board of the Internet Industry As Association, but I think after Peter had, had left at that point. Um, Peter has uh, preeminent qualifications to talk about not only the internet industry in general, with, uh, but he also has very strong legal uh, experience. And I think you're a qualified lawyer. I don't know if you're a practicing lawyer anymore, uh, Peter. Um, but, he, but he also has a strong technical background and he's had a very strong interest in uh, the human aspects of, of people working in, in IT and internet for many years. So I, I can't think of anybody more qualified than, than you, Pete, to uh, be able to run this session. And I'm really looking forward to uh, hearing the things that you're going to be telling us today. So I'm gonna hand over to you, Peter. So I'm gonna stop my screen sharing. Uh, and I think, uh, I'm, I think you should be ready to take over the screen sharing now. Yep, let me give that a try. Thank you. Um, start broadcast. Um, hi, everybody. Um, just let me go and grab my slides. Do you see that? Yep, okay. Um, well, thank you for that introduction, Kevin. It's a pleasure to be here with you all today. Um, as Kevin said, uh, the you know we both go back a long way to the early days of the internet. But um, while we've done some very work, early work in cybersecurity, I, I've always been uh, concerned about the human dimensions of the the uh, human machine interface, or the the impacts of technology on humans, and vice versa. So it probably comes as no surprise that stress and burnout has risen to the top of my uh, awareness around uh, the impacts that it's likely to have on the security posture of organizations and also by extension on society as a whole when you look at some of those big breaches that we've seen recently but imagine if that had happened to a critical infrastructure facility like a electricity plant or a distribution system or the water utility or financial services. So 
In fact, NAB, the, the head of National Australia Bank, said last month that they are fending off 50 million attacks a month. And when you realise that only one needs to get through to be successful, you can see that it's um, a fairly fraught situation that we're facing. So for me, um, CyberMinds is really the bringing together of two main streams of my own life. One is cybersecurity, obviously. The other is the humans and particularly around mental health. Um, it's an area that I've also studied in and worked in for decades, um, particularly doing my own private practices and teaching in the area. But um, at the beginning of this year, I sort of had the epiphany that there was a need to maybe integrate both streams of my life into a single focus. And that is really what CyberMinds is. So today, oh, this image is something that came out accidentally in a promo video that I was doing for our, uh, our not-for-profit CyberMinds. And it's a uh, double exposure of a a bird and then the mountain. And for me, it's a very powerful image. It connotes really the opportunity here is that working in cybersecurity, um, we need to develop a sense of groundedness and, and stability. And, and I think, you know, the word we use is resilience, um, although in other contexts, but the mountain for me connotes all of those things to be able to withstand the um, forces that act upon it without moving and without breaking and then the other is the bird which has the capacity to fly above a situation and take the bird's eye view and become somewhat detached from what's going on around it so for me this is really a nice hybrid concept of what we seek to deliver through cyber minds through the resilience programs that we've begun rolling out in australia so today i'm going to talk to you a little bit about the neuroscience behind stress um, I also have a background in neuroscience, having studied and taught in the area. Um, in fact, my maternal uncle is a neuroscientist, and I remember at the age of 10 being invited into his laboratory where he was examining brains, and that was my first encounter with a human brain in a bucket. And I never forget the, um, just the sense of wonder that I had looking at this quite ugly and inert organ. Uh, but really thinking about how it was that such a, a single part of the body could be the entire repository of our entire human experience and our interface with the world. So for me, sort of neuroscience is an area that has become even more important now that we're looking at the mental health impacts of working in cybersecurity. And luckily I've got that background where we can come in and do presentations like this and explain what's actually going on in your brain when you're stressed and what the long-term effects are likely to be if we don't manage it, but also the positive news about what can be done in a constructive way to help restore um, brains that are effectively being damaged by unmanaged stress. Um, we use the IRES protocol, Integrative Restoration Protocol is central to the work we're doing now. I can talk more about that in a moment, um, but we will be talking about that and in fact, uh, at the end, the fourth dot point, I'll be giving you a micro demonstration of the protocol itself so you can get a sense of how quick and effective it is to be able to flip out of your flight or flight mode into a calmer state where you have more clarity and more sense of perspective and just a little bit more reconnection with uh, a deeper, more stable part of yourself, which 
ultimately we seek to cultivate over time and help you become a happier person, but also more effective in your work. So um, when I studied, studied neuroscience in the 70s, early 70s, we were always taught that the brain was fixed at birth and we were assigned roughly 80 to 100 billion neurons. And these were the totality of the nerve cells that we were going to have for the rest of our life, the brain, nervous tissue. Um, and that's sort of a frightening prospect when you consider all the assaults that we put on our brain. And of course, it explains a lot of the reason why we see uh, increases in dementia and depression and other neurological or, uh, dis disorders. A lot of those are age-related, which suggests that if stress isn't properly managed, then the long-term effects can be hugely consequential. Um, so that was the conventional logic anyway. The conventional wisdom was you were assigned this sort of largely fixed amount of neurons. Um, certainly there was no development um, of proliferation and getting more brain cells after the age of, say, mid-teens. One thing you did get more of was synapses, and these are the connections between the brain cells. Uh, the, the, the dendrites and the synapses are the things that conduct nerve signals and, in, and enable learning to occur and sensory inputs and motor um, impulses to be delivered outwards from the brain to the muscles and the organs. So as you learn and as you develop, in fact, your synapses do continue to increase throughout life. And it's um, quite probable that as you're listening to this talk, you're actually forming new neural connections based on the information that's being presented to you now. And I mean, it's quite miraculous when you think about how um, inputs into your sensory system, knowledge and learning can actually result in structural changes to your brain in real time. But that's basically what's happening right now. Now, um, I'll just go back. Now, the good news is that um, with, with early studies around stroke victims in the mid-1990s, they started to find if you mobilise the paralysed limb where the corresponding brain uh, area responsible for motiv motivating or moving the organ was damaged. So, for instance, if you had a stroke and you get um, damage to the part that controls your left leg, for example, then, or, or even the left side of your body, then you often see stroke victims with partial or full paralysis. And what they started to find was as they mobilized these, and that, that was thought to be irre irreversible, but as they started to do different um, therapeutic responses to stroke, and they would start mobilizing the limbs and forcing the people to use the, the paralyzed limbs, over time, they realized that they were getting function back. But more importantly, they started to see redevelopment in the area of the brain that had been damaged. And this sort of cut right across the orthodox view that there couldn't be more brain cells developed. But in fact, there can. And from that arose the doctrine or the, the science of neuroplasticity. And that basically means that the brain has the capacity, even in adulthood, to respond to changes in the environment and to create development in corresponding areas that map to where the stimulation is occurring. So that was very exciting because it meant for the first time that it wasn't necessarily just a downhill slide into um, 
you know, decrepitude, but in fact, there is hope for people that are prepared to put in the work that you can actually restore memory, you can restore a lot of the functions that we typically would have written off uh, just on the basis of age. Now, the brain studied in a number of different ways. Um, one of the main ways, that the earlier ways of studying the brain, I don't know if I can enlarge that, is the um, through EEGs. So you're looking at the electrical activity across different regions of the brain. And you can see there, there's a sort of full gamut of the main frequencies that are measurable in the brain. Um, normally right now you're in beta. So you're at roughly 15 to 30 cycles per second. And uh, hopefully you're in the lower end of beta. Um, and I'll tell you why in a minute. But as you begin to relax, and particularly through this protocol we teach, we take people down into alpha states, which is sort of a very dreamy, calm-like state, pre-sleep state. If you keep going, you end up in theta states, which is on the border between sleep and waking. And then this is where a lot of insight and inspiration of people like Tesla and Einstein and Thomas Edison were often, and Salvador Dali, the artist, would often talk about the insights that would come as they learn to hold awareness open in this uh, hypnagogic state between sleep and waking. So it's a very powerful one, a state that's very full of potential if you know how to tap into it. Delta is the state of deep dreamless sleep. And there we're undergoing a lot of healing and internal restoration. Uh, also you have dream sleep, REM sleep, which is probably back up towards the theta end where you're actually processing emotions and information that you've accrued during the day. And then finally, last but certainly not least, is the gamma states right up the top. And those are the highest frequency brainwaves that you can experience. And typically when you're in high gamma, you're actually in um, what we call flow states. So I'm just show you here, being in the zone, uh, high empathy, sense of well-being, memory recall, your speed of information processing increases, you feel happier, and you've got a lot more communication occurring between different regions of the brain. So it's pretty fascinating. The bit in, of beta, medita uh, beta, beta uh, wave activity that you don't want to be in is the high beta up around the 30 hertz, because there that corresponds to fear, stress, anxiety, insomnia, nightmares, agitation, depression, chronic pain. It also means that increases the rate of cellular aging. And the reason for that is that when you're in high beta, you're actually starting to produce a lot of cortisol, which is the stress hormone in the brain, which is responsible for the flight or fight um, system. And we'll talk about that in a moment. So you want to try and bring the mind state down into lower states of beta where you're just basically able to pod logically process information and do the work you need to do. So that's a little bit of a uh, tour of the EEG realm. We can also use functional MRIs, which is a measure of blood flow to different regions of the brain. And you can see there that there's a scale on the right that shows you the different um, degrees of stimulation of those different brain regions. And this is very interesting because MRIs enable you to study a living brain and actually see which parts of the brain, which brain structures are involved or correlating with different activities that are undertaken at the time. 
So this is a hugely revolutionary. We've only had MRIs for about 25 years, but already that completely revolutionized neuroscience. Um, I want to talk about burnout now because this is where we're starting the rubbers hitting the road. If we are involved in high stress occupations and we're not able to manage stress, we're very interested to see what happens in the brain, but also subjectively you would feel there's three classic things that typify burnout. One is the sense of being overwhelmed uh, and unable to meet constant demands. And another one is this sense of emotional depletion where you feel like you're just drained and you've got nothing more to give, either to yourself, to your job or to the people around you. And then finally, <clears throat> you start to question your own efficacy, your own value as, uh, in the role that you're doing. And you tend to stop believing in your ability to be effective. And that has a demotivating effect that can lead to ultimately a lot of resignations, which is what we're seeing in cyber starting to happen. <coughs> um, now, when we talk about unmanaged stress in the brain, I'll just see if I can enlarge this. The main part of the brain that is implicated and would be driving burnout is the limbic system. And here you can see a number of different organs within the brain. Um, they're shaded as darker grays. And the main culprit, so to speak, is the amygdala. There are actually two that's in the middle there, a small almond-shaped organs and we have one on each side of each hemisphere this is the part that governs and triggers initiates the fight or flight response and the amygdala is designed for rapid heuristic so non-analytical responses to a threat and typically um, an amygdala will um, store emotional memory so that if something happened to you in the past that was a bad experience, then by learning to respond to like situations, it tends to flip you into flight or fight quicker each time you face a similar situation. <coughs> Excuse me. The uh, hippocampus is um, wraps around the top, uh, around the side there, actually, on the right of the amygdala. This is the area of learning and memory. And so it's closely associated with the amygdala as well. In states of high activation, where you're in flight or fight for a long period of time and you're not switching out, the hippocampus begins to degenerate. And that's why you might subjectively feel like you're becoming more forgetful. And if that's left unmanaged, it can actually precipitate through anxiety all the way into depression. And ultimately now they believe that depression other than genetic factors is the single greatest contributor to the dimensions. So it's super important that you manage stress because the long-term effects can be quite significant. Um, when we look at teams and what we hear from cybersecurity people, these are the main things that keep coming through. They find because of the job environment and the responsibility that they carry, that they find it very difficult to switch off even when they're not working. And it's this incipient sense probably held in the subconscious of an expectation of the, the phone call that you don't want to get in the middle of the night that you've been hacked. 
And so because of this um, relentless nature of the threat environment, which is the third point there, acts to keep the limbic system activated. Feelings of overwhelm come just from the sheer volume of information that you need to evaluate and analyze and determine whether it's safe or not. And of course, keeping up with developments in the threat environment as well can be pretty overwhelming. Fear of consequence of failure is also a big driver of stress because you know a lot of people we know in cyber, many of them, I'd say most, are driven by a sense of protection. They're very, very mission-driven people. So if they feel like they're not doing their job well, then they're going to feel like they're letting the team down if they're not performing at peak, and then they fear for the consequences of that. In many cases in Australia and elsewhere, there's still a culture of blame in organisations that don't understand the complexities of cybersecurity, and as a result of that, um, quite unfairly, often the cyber teams are punished for attacks that may not have even had anything to do with their um, the quality of their work, but rather, as Kevin said at the beginning, a human factor, someone else in the organization engaging in high-risk behavior. Um, they also have a fear of letting others down, often feel a lack of support, largely because the work is not really well understood. So the organization is not acknowledging their work. And, Part of that also is because the success is invisible in cybersecurity. If you're doing your job well in cyber, no one really gets to see that. You, how do you demonstrate that you know, by not being attacked it was something that you, know, you were responsible for and therefore should be um, you know, receive recognition for? On the other hand, the counterpoint is that an attack is highly visible. So you're living in this binary world where success is invisible um, but attack is highly visible and highly consequential. Um, the, also, the pandemic with the remote working meant that people more and more were feeling isolated, working from home, and in these high-pressure roles, I think there was a mental health effect by just simply not being in an environment where you could necessarily talk to your peers and share the pressures that you were under. And finally, a sense within the... Um, cyber community generally that because their work is not well understood or their roles are seen largely as technical that they, there's a disconnect between the cyber teams and generally the senior management the c-suite or the leadership of the organization and because of the disconnect they generally don't have power and influence in the organization that adequately reflects the degree of responsibility that they're carrying so all of these things culminate in high levels of stress and burnout the big concern is skills loss as people find that the job becomes untenable, they start to look elsewhere and we are losing people out of the sector right at the time when we need them. So it's a, a serious situation that's unfolding and largely explains why CyberMinds exists that we're coming in to do something about it by directing, we're not just gonna talk about it. You know, there's been a lot of talk about mental health, which is great but we want to actually move into the next phase, which is actually direct workplace interventions, working with individuals and teams to start reversing some of these processes. Um, <clears throat> this is a, a little schematic uh, showing the burnout trajectory. You can see some of the things that I've mentioned already so that if you're not able to control the work demands, don't have enough resources, 
and you can't um, and you feel that the threat's ever present, over time that's going to be driving um, chronic stress, emotional depletion, all these factors that we talked about, compromised effectiveness, lack of job satisfaction, and then you burn out. Uh, when you burn out, you leave. That exacerbates the skill shortage. And then, of course, that line up around the left, you see that dotted line, it says increases the workload of those remaining behind. So in other words, it's a, it's a vicious circle that gets worse. As more people leave, it sort of fuels the continuation of the process. And we shouldn't forget also the human costs on individuals um, that are having to manage their work, their life, their relationships and everything else. So all in all, I think this is fairly typical of what's going on right now. Um, I want to talk about what we do want to see starting to develop. So we talked about burnout. The counterpoint is really to develop a sense of resilience, which is not just an intellectual concept, but really translates right through to um, structural changes in the brain that give you the ability to ramp up when you need to, but also to switch off when you need to, and to be able to distinguish between a real threat and an imagined threat and respond accordingly. Um, this final point, being able to rapidly decompress and do an energy conserving relaxed state once the threat has passed, that's the challenge that people are facing. And so if you're able to do those things to be able to be on, on the ball and fully focused and functioning at a high level, almost in a flow state, and also able to switch off when you need to, then we would say that's getting close to a pretty reasonable definition of what resilience would look like. Um, we're using the IRS protocol, which is this uh, methodology it was developed by Dr. Richard Miller in the US in the early 2000s. Uh, he's actually a clinical psychologist with over 40 years practice. He took it to the US Army, Walter Reed Army Hospital in 2006, where they did trials with returning veterans from Iraq and Afghanistan, who were in some cases traumatized. And they had such success with it that it was formally approved four years later by the US Army Surgeon General as a complementary tier one therapy for um, pain management and also some of these other aspects. Oops. Um, so it, typically these days it's used all over the world. We've, I've trained in delivering the protocol. There are about 7,000 facilitators worldwide. We have 400 in Australia. And it's from that pool that CyberMinds is drawing on to um, induct them into the language and culture of cybersecurity. And thereby we're developing a very scalable resource that we can deliver online as well as in person to help go into teams and help reverse some of the um, issues that we've talked about. Um, Richard talks Richard Miller talks about developing a sense of unbreakable well-being. So this sense that the, we have within us a core of strength that we often lose connection with, and a large part of our self-doubt and lack of motivation is because we've come to believe 
let's say, negative thoughts that we're carrying, this constant narrative of self-doubt. And over time, that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy and it culminates in the anxiety and then depression and burnout that we observe. Um, I'm not going to go into this slide too much, but really, if, if I had time, this basically demonstrates how the protocol works through the different phases to take you into uh, physical sensing, somatic, we call it somatic sensing, feeling the body. And then that moves you down into uh, lower rates of beta activity. And then in phase two, uh, you go down into the alpha states and then into theta and you're starting to release serotonin, which is a very feel good sort of mood enhancing hormone. It's a natural hormone of the brain that you can learn how to release at will. Um, also, as you're reducing beta in the first phase, you're actually reducing the levels of cortisol, um, which is the stress hormone. One thing I should observe, and I don't have any evidence for this, it's more of a, just a, uh, a hunch, really. The high levels of rates of infection during the pandemic could pass partially be explained by the high stress states that people are in because cortisol turns out to be an in inhibitor of the immune system. It starts to shut down your immune system. So if people are highly stressed, it's more likely they're gonna be susceptible to picking up anything that the immune system would normally be able to regulate. So there's another sort of physiological benefit that comes from being more relaxed and that is you get a stronger immune system. If we move down into the deeper states, we're going into problem solving and uh, the ability to promote memory, increase your concentration. And this is all um, areas within the, or, or functions of the cortex, the, the prefrontal cortex of the brain, which is really the thing that differentiates humans from all other mammalian species. Now, when you're in flight or fight, I should mention the frontal cortex shuts down. It's largely put out of action the amygdala basically comes in and hijacks all your neurological reserves and directs resources towards survival. So the brain is very much geared towards survival. It was never optimized by evolution for happiness, unfortunately. And that's probably the reason why we're all surviving, but we're not necessarily that happy. <laughs> um, when we move deeper into the deeper states of brainwave activity, normally we're going to be dropping down into sleep at that point. But if there is a possibility through the protocol where you can retain open awareness, even while the body apparently sleeps, then you're starting to get into the release of anandamide, which is a, like an endorphin that gives you very, very high feelings of well-being, And that in turn can immunize you. Um, not literally, but in a metaphorical sense against further stress. Also, I should say in the fourth state in the delta waves, you're also getting human growth hormone released, which is implicated in um, healing of the body, anything that needs to be healed and restored. And also we start to see gene repair occurring. So this is the reason we observe that in people that practice the protocol, they tend to look younger than their actual years because they're actually optimizing the healing processes and also the accuracy of their gene replication, the cellular replication of DNA. Um, I won't, that's another whole talk, but if the short point is that if you're highly stressed and you've got a lot of cortisol going on, 
then it's going to interfere with your gene repair, which means that you're going to age faster. So if there wasn't enough incentive already in what I've said, uh, I gave a talk in Melbourne a couple of months ago and a young woman there said, you've convinced me. I'm, I'm going to do this on the basis of just looking younger and, and that alone is, is enough to sell me on this. Um, the study, the protocol itself is independently verified by a lot of research. Um, it's in use, use in over 50 military and veterans facilities in the US for some of those conditions, post-trauma stress management, uh, anxiety, depression, and pain. So very effective. It's also used outside of the military establishments in palliative care facilities, cancer clinics, homeless shelters, victims of domestic violence. It's been used for frontline emergency workers. So it's had very broad application. But for us, CyberMinds, this is the first application of the IRS protocol into cybersecurity anywhere in the world. So we're leading the way here by bringing this powerful mechanism into this so valuable and, and I think um, this, this critical sector. Now we're a not-for-profit, I think I explained that. And that pretty much is the end of the presentation. So what I'm gonna do now is stop sharing my slides. And come back into the frame. I think there I am. Oh, that's my microphone. Okay, sorry about that. See that thing there? Yeah. So, if you're willing, I was thinking I'd like to give you a short demonstration of the IRS protocol so you can get a feeling, a sense of how quickly you can move into a deeper, calmer state. And this is the protocol that we are now delivering to cyber teams in Australia. We've got some leading organisations behind us. The New South Wales government has come in as a founding partner, CyberCX. Uh, Deloitte signed on about a couple of months ago, Mimecast as well. So we've got some pretty enthusiastic partners that are seeing the potential of what we're offering and bringing it already into teams through pilot programs. And we're getting great results. I've got to tell you the people that are doing this, we've done We've done a couple Allianz insurance we did at the beginning of the year and they were really unbelievable about um, how, how much it had changed their life. Even in, that was only a four week program. Now we're doing standardized eight and six week programs. And again, we're starting to see them talking about uh, better sleep, uh, just feeling happier, um, being nicer to be around and um, not letting things throw them off so much in the workplace. Peter, so one think, of the things that characterizes the school community is uh, despite the fact that they're having to look after hundreds, if not thousands of accounts, their teams are relatively small. So there may be teams as small as one or two people in the smaller schools, but even in the large schools, you might only have a team of 10 or 12 people that are looking after thousands of accounts. How suitable is this protocol to the use within a small team environment, even though the stresses may be great. Yeah, well, I mean, it does work at any level. We can even do individual, but we prefer to do group work because you start to build a, a common support amongst the participants. Um, but for small micro organizations, we do hybrid groups where we can bring people in from different organizations to make up a group. 
Uh, that's we actually started one last Friday. So there's definitely scope. You don't have to bring 15 people to us to do it. If you've got two or three, we can, you know, get another six organizations to bring two or three, and then we've got a viable eight-week course that we can deliver. So very so, happy to talk to you about that. But yeah, it works at, at, at upscale or downscale. How, how long does this demonstration take? Uh, and we can ask the group uh, that are on the call at the moment yeah. whether they want to see the demonstration or not. Can I ask, um, uh, how can we, Rob, how can we get a feedback from people as to whether they'd like to see a demonstration or not? Can they vote on a question? We could after write the question. What I suggest, so if everyone just, if you want to do it, there's the raise hand option at the bottom. If you raise your hands, um, you click it. That would be the best way of doing it. So we've got a, a couple have already said yes. Okay, we've got a couple of raised hands. I there. think well, I could give you like a 10 or 15 minute version of this. So it's quite condensed. Okay. If people have got time for, say, 10, 15 minutes, then I can. Um, Let's, let's, let's try and aim for 10, Pete, and, and we'll see All how right. we go. The, okay. the thing about the timing, though, just let me say, I, I won't push beyond our allocated time if we agree on 10 minutes, but it takes time to actually move down into the deeper states. So if you rush it, you probably might get down into alpha. If you want to experience theta or delta states, you really need to go for the full version, but we don't have time for that. So I'll do what I can do in 10 minutes. Um, so what we'll do is invite people to turn their cameras off now. And I'm just going to guide you as a, um, this is a facilitated shift. So you're just basically following the voice. If you're somewhere where you can close the door or just make sure you're not interrupted, because if you feel like someone's going to walk in any moment and disturb you, then your subconscious isn't going to let you really go deep into, into the state. Um, now, you can do this either lying down or sitting in a chair. If we were doing the longer protocol, I definitely invite you to lie down because, again, you're eliminating the fear of falling once you get into these hyper-relaxed states. But for now, just sit comfortably where you are. If you're in a swivel chair, just lower it so that you can plant the feet firmly on the floor. And you're trying to sit very still because we're trying to demobilize the physical body to bring it into a deep state of rest. So you're just resting comfortably upright in the chair. Or if you are lying down, just lying flat on your back with the arms slightly apart, the feet slightly apart from the body, the arms away from the body, the feet slightly apart. And then just bringing awareness to, with your eyes closed, to just any sounds that are surrounding you in your vicinity. So we're just tuning into the sensory layer, sounds or any feeling of the weight of the body resting on the surface, providing support. And if thoughts come, you just return to the physical sensing. We're not here to analyze or to critically evaluate at a mental level. We're actually allowing thoughts to just drift away 
and we're just bringing awareness to the actual sensations of the body. Touch of air on the skin. Just sensing the temperature of the air in the room around you. Any residual taste in the mouth. Just the flow of air through the nostrils. And then just allowing my words to guide you as we rotate attention through the body, becoming aware of any sensations in the jaw, in the mouth. Just feeling into the sensations in the mouth, the tongue, teeth and gums. The inner walls of the mouth. The lips. The entire region of the jaw and the mouth as sensation. Bringing awareness up to the cheeks, left and right, and both cheeks together at the same time. The ears, the left ear, right ear, both ears together, feeling them as a radiant sensation. Bringing awareness to the eyes, the left eye, right eye and both eyes together as a sensation. Nothing to fix or change here, we're just being present with what is, bringing awareness to the forehead, feeling any energies in the forehead, sensations, pulsations to the top of the head, back of the head, back of the neck, the throat, the entire head and neck face as an orb, a field of radiance sensation. And bringing awareness down to the hands, to the left hand and to the right hand. Sensing both hands together. And the feeling in both hands. Feeling down into the feet, the left foot, the right foot. And feeling both feet together. And then consciously holding in awareness as best you can the head, face, hands, and feet. 
and notice what happens when you become aware of the effect of holding multiple parts of the body in simultaneous awareness and stepping out of the sensation into the awareness that observes these things. Just becoming aware of the field of awareness in which all sensations are arising and passing away. Bringing awareness now to the breath. As you're breathing in, feeling the air flowing in down into the lungs through the nostril. The abdomen rising and on the out breath, the abdomen releasing, the air flowing out. And just following the flow of breath in and out. Observing the state of the mind as the awareness rests with the flow of breath. Feeling things settling down. Maybe sensing back into this open, spacious awareness. The awareness that is the witness of the bodily sensations and the breath. and just reaching into the awareness itself. Awareness aware of itself. The awareness that is spacious, open, timeless. ever present. Without border and center. And yet very familiar. Sense of being as being itself. In a moment, we're going to transition back into waking awareness. Before we do, just to take a moment to feel a sense of gratitude to yourself for just taking these few minutes for a bit of self-care and a bit of restoration and release. So just feeling some gratitude to yourself. Maybe resol resolving as well an intention you may wish to repeat this practice or something similar in the future. Just to restore a bit of balance and harmony in your own life and in those around you. And then coming out now, just keeping the eyes closed for the moment, but just moving the fingers and toes. Taking a deep breath and stretch.
And then when you're ready to return to your eyes open waking state. So that is a very small preview of the RS protocol. There are normally 10 steps. We did about two and a half. So what happens typically over 35 minutes is you go deeper and deeper and you can go in and see the emotions that are beneath the surface and you can learn to be with those and gradually they become integrated and processed and a lot of stuff, trauma even that you've been carrying for a long time just starts to naturally dissolve away. All the accumulated stress will dissolve. It leaves the system and it leaves you feeling very present, very connected and very in tune effectively. Peter, that's, that's great training for, for resilience. I, I, I can see the benefit from this in the long term in that it's effectively a training session that, you, that you're going through. You're teaching yourself how to build up that resilience and that confidence. Yeah. Um, and I also see it as being a benefit to the motivation, long-term motivation for people when they know that they've got that opportunity to, to go into those training sessions, to be able exactly. to build that. And, I, and certainly from what we're seeing uh, in the, in, in a, in the uh, work that we're doing with IT teams in schools, uh, the need for that sort of training is, 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 is very high. Uh, maybe if I could uh, take over the screen at, at, at this point. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not quite sure how to do that. Uh, where's my, here we go. I'm going to, um, maybe if we could wrap up the session at, at this point. Um, and I, what I'd like to be uh, doing is just um, indicating uh, where we're going in the, in the future. As I indicated to you before, uh, I've worked with Peter for over 20 years uh, in various guises in the internet industry. And security is a paramount concern to our student net product, our cloud work product, and, and to our overall position. Um, so I see an opportunity to collaborate. Again, um, Pete, you're stuck with me. Um, I, I see an opportunity <laughs> to, to collaborate again with Peter um, to, to improve the security model that can be applied within schools. Now, I don't know how we can apply this, your concepts that you've just been teaching us about here into our into our cloud work product, but I, I'd be absolutely flabbergasted if there isn't an opportunity for us to, to, to do some collaborative work and to, and to build into our security product, our identity protection product, the ability to, to uh, maybe some prompts, maybe some timetabling to be able to say, well, okay, is it now an opportunity for you as a user to be, to be undertaking those sorts of exercises? Um, so uh, thank you very much for your uh, involvement uh, today. Peter, I, I really appreciate that. Um, I really think that we should be wrapping up at, at this stage. Uh, and uh, as I indicated, uh, Rob has been uh, recording this session and this, will be, this session will be available for people to review. They may want to do that little practice session again, um, just, to, just to see if they can get further benefit from it. I'm really fascinated by you saying it's only two and a half steps that we did. How many did you say was the overall thing? 10 or 10 or 11? 10 steps is the total protocol. So. Um, yeah, I, I just wonder how, how, how terrific I'd feel after, after 10 steps. I felt great after two and a half steps. How, how much better am I going to feel after 10 steps? You wouldn't maybe, believe it. Maybe too much of a good thing, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much, Kevin. Thanks to all of you for your time today. 
and uh, I, Rob, well, we should look at wrapping the session up now. And uh, and thank you, everybody. I want to wish everybody a happy Christmas, a, a safe uh, holiday season coming up. We will be publishing our uh, availability uh, uh, announcement uh, over the Christmas New Year period. You'll get an email shortly about that. But in the meantime, if I don't get a talk, uh, get a chance to talk to you, I know it's the last week of school for many of you. Have a have a ha happy and safe uh, Christmas period, and thank you for attending today. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. See you. Bye.